For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Francesca Block. You're listening to Daybreak. Earlier this week, Daybreak writer Hope Perry and I sat down with Princeton professor Kevin Cruz, a historian who's grown a bit of a following for being outspoken on Twitter, to talk about this year's presidential transition. It's Sunday, December 13th. It's now been over a month since Joe Biden was projected as president-elect of the United States. And compared to most presidential transitions in the modern era, well, it's been an odd month. Has this ever happened before, where a presidential candidate has refused to concede an election? And what does this mean for the future of American democracy? To find out, Hope and I talked to Kevin Cruz, a Princeton history professor who specializes in 20th century American politics. So Professor Cruz, first of all, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Uh, My pleasure. So, Professor, as you know, today is December 8th, nearly 35 days from the 2020 election and 31 days from when the media officially called the race in favor of Joe Biden. Yet, President Donald Trump has still not conceded the election. We hear the words unprecedented and constitutional crisis thrown around a lot these days, but we wanted to hear from your perspective and a more historical perspective, has this ever happened before? Are there any sitting presidents in the past who have waited this long to concede or never conceded their races? You know, the, the concession is, is a modern invention, but not in the modern era. Um, uh, usually uh, a, a president who, or, or a challenger who faces defeat concedes in a, in a fairly timely fashion. The, the closest I can think of to, to this would be 1960 when the Nixon campaign toyed with the idea of doing recounts in several states and ultimately decided against it, decided it would be uh, a disaster and, and considered in short order. Uh, it's usually within, uh, if not uh, that night, uh, usually a, a couple days after that, uh, when, when the, the losing candidate in a very close race would, would concede. What's remarkable is this race wasn't close. The popular vote margin was huge, of course, and that's not what matters. What matters is the Electoral College, also is huge. And so this is unlike, say, the uh, election of 2000, which, which went on for, for long because there was such an incredibly thin margin, just over 500 votes in one single state, and the entire election hinged on that. And it was the, uh, the Bush campaign uh, was trying to hold on to a lead of just a few hundred votes. And that's rather different than uh, the Trump campaign uh, trying to overturn multiple states' margins of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of votes. So yeah, we're, we're way off of um, anything we've seen before here. And what do you think are the implications of this? Well, I think it's really troubling. Uh, we, you know, when we talk about, we have to talk about American exceptionalism, and that means many things, but, but one of the things that often means in political history is the smooth transfer of power, uh, a, a willingness on all parties to abide by the results of an election uh, and, and accept their losses. And um, we've seen this from Republicans and Democrats in the past. Uh, George H.W. Bush, when he lost, Al Gore, when he lost to George H.W. Bush's son, on and on, a, a kind of a, even in a bitter contested election, uh, people will concede and, and, and do so, uh, if not happily, at least knowing that they need to. And what we've seen here is the part of the Trump campaign and its, uh, its supporters, and really it's much of the Republican Party at this point, seems to be standing by and, and calling uh, President-elect Biden's election into doubt. What they're doing is they're, uh, they're really casting uh, doubts on the entire integrity of our election. Uh, and this was actually one of the most uh, secure elections we've had in, in, in recent years. I think because so many people were worried about all the things that could go wrong, everyone kind of stepped up their game. It was a bit like the Y2K bug. You all are too young to remember that. But in 2000, there was a big panic that this 
uh, this this bug in uh, in the internet uh, was going to uh, suddenly cause everything to crash. A lot of people worked hard to make sure it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. And that's what we had here. We had an election in which uh, there was a, a lot of worry, uh, and it actually went incredibly smoothly, given all the things that could have gone wrong. But now the Trump campaign, and, and again, it's much of the Republican Party backing them up on this, is acting as though there was massive widespread fraud, uh, but there are reasons to call these things into doubt. They've been trying to win court cases across the, the, the country, uh, have been uh, almost literally laughed out of court uh, every time they've gone in because they simply have no evidence. Uh, and yet they persist in the court of public opinion to try to sway people against it. And they're, they're sowing doubt in our institutions. And I think it's, it's incredibly dangerous. Thank you. I just wanted to turn a little bit to something else that you kind of mentioned um, in that answer. So recognizing that we're in no way historians or experts um, but you are. What makes this moment feel so distinctive to us, just as you know, students and people here, um, is that we now live in a country whose citizens are entirely divided in their perceptions of the truth. So, for example, on November 18th, Reuters reported that over 50% of Republicans in the United States believed that Donald Trump had rightfully won the election. So why do you think this is, and what implications does it have for the future of the American political landscape? It's a severe problem. This is one that uh, Professor Zelizer and I wrote about in a, in a book we did called Fault Lines. We, we trace the growing fracturing of, uh, of the media landscape and the impact that has on, on politics. And I think you see evidence of this in this moment, that there are, uh, because Americans no longer get their news from the same kind of reliable set of sources and are instead, in a lot of ways, uh, siloed off in their own media ecosystems, uh, we're seeing just total different basis of, of understanding of what the basic facts are. Uh, and that leads to, to wildly different problems. So if you're on the right, if you uh, solely get your news from, say, you know, Fox News or, uh, or, or now Newsmax or OANN or any of these, uh, the, the kind of the far right ones even beyond Fox News, uh, you're getting a very different picture of what's actually happening because you're being, uh, being fed a, a certain line. And there's a refusal to grapple with anything that exists outside that, that media uh, silo. And what that means is that um, it used to be that, you know, Americans uh, certainly had differences of opinion, but they started with the same basic set of facts. Uh, and they might put a different spin on them. They might put a different interpretation, might put a different emphasis. But they were starting from the same basic set of shared reality. Uh, and instead, you've now got uh, an, an, an alternate universe. Uh, it's uh, someone called it the, the Fox News Cinematic Universe. I like that one. Uh, but there's a, this entire world out there. Uh, which exists in an, almost an alternate reality. Uh, and the problem is, is that uh, in our politics, you can't simply operate with a totally different set of facts. So we've got to start from the same, uh, the same base, basic starting point here. And, and we don't have that anymore. And it's, it's, it's incredibly dangerous, I think. So along those same lines, we know that you are actually very active on Twitter. In fact, you've actually been named, quote, Twitter's leading historian. We, we also know that you've written extensively about polarization in the media, as you mentioned in your book, Fault Lines. So how do you view the role of social media today in kind of exacerbating that polarization? And also, what do you see as your place in it? Yeah, social media absolutely uh, has made this much worse. Uh, so in that book, Fault Lines, we kind of track the, the growing divide from you know, a cable TV and, and then talk radio in the 90s and then the advent of the internet and social media is clearly uh, the end point. And it's very possible in social media. In fact, it's almost, you have to fight against it 
to, to kind of create your own bubble. Uh, you, you pick on Twitter who you follow and who can follow you. You can lock your account down. You can block out certain people. You can create a very kind of, kind of hermetically sealed bubble in that world. Um, and, and I urge people to, to fight against that. I follow people from across the political spectrum and, and they follow me back from I'm kind of a center-left liberal. I follow people to the far left of me. I follow uh, Republicans and conservatives and libertarians and, uh, and, and people all across the board. And I do so because, A, I want to be better informed, uh, and, and I don't think I know everything off the bat. Uh, uh, and also, I want my own assumptions and arguments to be challenged. Uh, you know, I, I, if, you, if you just hearing from people who you already agree with and who already agree with you, uh, you become dull. Uh, and, you know, as an academic, I, we live in a world of, of, of criticism. Uh, you guys think you've had your papers torn apart, uh, a, a dissertation or, 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 or uh, you know, a, a conference paper uh, can, can really generate a, a, a book, the book reviews we get, uh, really bring in a lot of criticism, but that makes us better, right? That makes us smarter, makes us sharper. Uh, and so I want to expose myself to those views across the political spectrum. And so, so that's how I see the way in which I think we all should fight against uh, this kind of tendency to, to silo ourselves off. The same way in which I read, you know, I read Jacobin and I read National Review, right? I read, you know, read things from across the spectrum that I might not always agree with, but uh, I find a, a kind of a productive attention there. As for my role on social media, um, I'm not sure if being a, a, the leading Twitter historian is an honor or not, uh, but it, uh, I do see, I see Twitter as an extension of, of teaching. And so the same kind of thing I would do in the classroom to try to, again, push back against um, uh, a fake history, which has uh, really been on the march over these last four years, uh, and to, to provide people with the tools to, to understand the truth. Uh, and that's not simply saying, I'm a Princeton historian, you should listen to me, uh, but rather to say, no, look, here's the actual proof, here's the evidence. And that's what I like about Twitter is that, um, say, I, you know, I do op-eds and articles and, and things like that all the time, but in, in Twitter, I can actually show my work. Uh, I, I'm an archive rat, and I, I, I love to dig into the raw materials of history. And on Twitter, I can actually show that. I can, you know, put a screenshot up of a newspaper article or a primary document or uh, a link to a video of a speech or audio or things like that. And I, I can actually let people say, look, here you go. You, you listen to this. And so it's not the usual Twitter, of which is often results to he said, she said, who knows, but rather to say, look, here's the actual evidence. Look at this yourself you know, reckon with this, this material yourself. And I find that, that that often works well. Again, the same thing I would do in the classroom where I, I try not to, I try, you know, I, as I sit up on the, the lectern and I give my, well, in a normal year, I would be on the lectern in Makash 50 and, 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 and give a, a nice tidy narrative. But in the, the reading assignments I give, I often give primary sources for that reason to say, look, here, you reckon with this yourself. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Before we go, we wanted to just remind our listeners, um, Professor Cruz is the author of several books on the history of American politics, uh, one of which we spoke about, and I've read Fault Lines, A History of America Since 1974, written with fellow Princeton professor Julian Zelizer. Uh, I highly recommend it to all of our listeners because it really is a great read. Um, and thank you so much for being with us today and giving us your perspective. Thanks for having me. That's all for Daybreak today. Keep an eye out for more special episodes in the weeks to come. And listen to our daily episodes again when classes start for the spring semester in February. Today's episode was produced under the 144th Managing Board of The Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horan, class of 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Francesca Block. Have an amazing week.